NBA Fantasy NBA Hybrid Podcast brought to you by Jalen Utsi, Kyle Stein, and me, Michael Kimball. We continue to be in NBA suspension, and so we are taking you back to April 23rd, 1963, Game 6 of the NBA Finals. It's Celtics versus Lakers. It is Bob Cousy's last game. Bill Russell is amazing. And it is a weird, weird game to watch in 1963. The Celtics start Bob Cousy, Sam Jones, Tom Sanders, Tom Heinzen, Tommy Heinzen, Bill Russell, three other guys you all know the names of because every single one of these players was a Hall of Famer. The Lakers are starting Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, Rudy LaRusso, uh, missing somebody, Frank Selvey and Gene Wiley. It is a fun game to watch for all of the old-timey basketball stuff that we're about to see. Um, what did you guys think of this game? It's fast. Uh, really fast. The, the announcers don't stop talking about it. It's up and down. There are a lot of runs, especially in that first quarter. Which is great. Classic Bob Cousy uh, fast break with, you know, Russell as the trail man coming in for the putback dunks and outletting really quickly to Cousy. So uh, that was cool to see. Yeah, it was a it was a modern element right off the top, um, uh, which uh, and, and I was expecting to see some more of that. I was surprised to see really how little of that there <laughs> was at times. Uh, th- there are classic plays that we see today with quick outlet, fast break, lay up some of that stuff. But a lot of this game looks really, really different. One of the things we see right off the jump are um, mid-range jumper after mid-range jumper. If you were open, you were putting the ball up. Um, it, it was sort of fascinating to see just what a good shot was in 1963. Yeah, um, it's so it's so interesting because I feel like uh, our modern attitudes toward the pull-up jump shot are like, um, you know, we think of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant as like operators who took the pull up mid ranger and like dominated the game that way. And Kawhi Leonard now as a more modern equivalent. But we were so resistant to that happening from the three point line. Um, right. Just I guess it's a worse shot. Uh, we thought it's not actually really a worse shot. And we are so worried about the percentages and maybe to some degree how it looked when it didn't go in. But what watching these older games has reminded me is that the simplest thing to do on a basketball court is stop and shoot. Uh, (laughs) And in many ways that was like the genius of the pull up three point revolution, the NBA, if you can shoot it well, it's nearly impossible to defend. It's hard to block because you're so much further away from the basket. It's a quick shot. It's over really quickly. It's extremely hard to defend and it's pretty simple. Like uh, Mark Jackson <laughs> yeah. was famously quoted as saying uh, Steph Curry had turnover problems, still has turnover problems. But he was quoted as saying, if you're in trouble, just shoot because your <laughs> jump shot is so good that it's better that you get a shot attempt than an automatic turnover if you're yeah. like, getting double teamed or something. So watching these older games kind of reminded me like 
they weren't trying to do anything too crazy on a fast break. You know, if they didn't have a clear layup, they'd stop and take the jumper. It's also really notable because when when we think about the older NBA, I think that there's this impression that it was an inside game. And, and everyone, I think, refers to it as being an inside game. But you'd be struck by how many jumpers there are and how many jumpers there are from around, like, present three-point land. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were, you know, if the line would have been there, there were a few three-pointers. And I think, you know, right off the jump ball, the Lakers have a set play there. Karen, the tip, I don't know if it went to West or it's quickly passed to West, but then he does a little weird flip shovel pass to Frank Selvi in the corner. Like, that's supposed to be a, a set play jump shot from all appearances. It didn't come off. The, the Celtics sussed it out before it could develop, but... Um, they were setting him up just for that clean shot. And Jalen, to go back to your point about just putting the ball up in places, it seemed as if there were times when they were just throwing the ball toward the backboard and hoping somebody else, you know, rebounded it and had a decent shot inside. And then Kyle, to one of your points, one of the reasons there weren't so many layups in this game, possibly, the fact that Bill Russell exists. Yeah. And as just an aside about Bill Russell, I speaking of the up and down game, I was surprised by how many times he took the ball up the court. I mean, he he I mean, it looked like very much modern NBA to me. He would take down the rebound, he would dribble it up and he would, he would start the offense. Yeah. Yeah, and he handled the ball well. You know, dribbling is not great here, and we'll talk about that more later, but he handled the ball fairly well. You weren't worried when he was bringing the ball up, or I wasn't. Yeah, and he could block a shot, turn it into a rebound, and then move it up the floor. (laughs) He was really everything. (laughs) Right. And Kyle, I know you did some more... uh, you, you did some research on the NBA history that brought us forward to this matchup. Could you could you tell us a little about that? Well, yeah, I found this game really interesting because, you know, we've talked about the origins of the game already in our discussion of basketball aesthetics. Uh, that was back in episode 21, if people are interested. Um, so I won't go back that far to the beginning of the game um, with Naismith, but I wanted to set the stage for this game in relation to that discussion by considering um, sort of where it comes out of, and particularly going back to the barnstorming 20s. So professional basketball um, centered on three prominent teams in the 1920s, and these teams all have a connection in some way with the, the game that we're watching today in 1963. Uh, there's the New York Renaissance, or the Rens, an all-black traveling team that also had a home court at the Renaissance Casino and Ballroom in Harlem. Uh, the still-playing and well-known Harlem Globetrotters, uh, which actually, despite the name, started out on the south side of Chicago. Um, and the New York original Celtics uh, of the American Basketball League. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. So what they won't mention is that the original Celtics were an all-white team at a time when basketball was entirely segregated. 
They also don't mention in this newsreel that the all-black New York Wrens had defeated the Celtics in two consecutive championship games and doubled the Celtics' record 44 straight wins with 88 in the 1932-33 season. You, you bring up an interesting point there. Um, I just want to call out the New York Wrens. That was one of the Black Fives teams, uh, a, a great basketball team at the time when everything was still segregated. Um, uh, and they have a kind of amazing history uh, based on what little I can find out there. It's sort of an, uh, uh, well, uh, I, I guess we know why, but the history of the Black Fives is kind of buried. There isn't a lot out there. Um, there's a doc, uh, I think you said, Kyle, and a couple of articles here and there, but there really isn't that much information. It sort of um, uh, fits in a negative uh, way for the history of basketball that that's been occluded. Yeah, I think in the, you know, in the public, there's so much attention put on the original Celtics, as you would see from this newsreel, um, that the, the the history of the all-black teams um, was largely overlooked. Um, and I'll note that the original Celtics um, have no direct connection with the later Boston Celtics, but in all likelihood, the original Celtics inspired the later team's name. And it's interesting for me to think about that because of how the later Celtics teams um, have been thought of as being if not segregated teams, being teams that really catered to a Boston public that wanted to see, you know, white stars. Yeah, this was this was a thing I grew up with. And this was a thing I knew as a kid in the late 70s, early 80s, even this was one of the reasons that that me and my friends who loved basketball hated the Boston Celtics, that there was an overabundance of white guys playing on that team. I, I can't remember if I have this right. But Larry Bird was a great white hope at the time. I think that was a phrase that was floated with some common usage and just sort of yeah you look back and it doesn't seem right it's kind of complicated though because the celtics um who weren't the original celtics the celtics were also the first team to draft a black player in 1950 chuck cooper who went on to be a hall of flamer so yeah it's the, there's good and bad here yeah and obviously you know red auerbach um gunning for it to, you know, gunning to get um, Bill Russell on the team is, yeah. you know, it further complicates that history. Sure. I mean, the the read from the Celtics was, a lot, you know, I bet Red Auerbach felt he got an amazing steal on Chuck Cooper. Yeah. In the second round. Interesting. And, and so um, the, the, the original Celtics joined the ABL, um, the, the, the major league in the 1920s, the American Basketball League, uh, in 1926, uh, but were such a good team that they opted to drop out of it in 1929 and play instead as an at-large independent traveling team. And that was kind of a standard where you'd have these really popular teams like the Globetrotters or the original Celtics who wouldn't buy into the leagues themselves. And so they really undercut the, the like wider spread popularity of them. Um, huh. Yeah, and it's in the striking thing, you know, about this game is that, you know, we're, we're in a part of, of the NBA history now where, you know, where this is like the center part of the history. But, you know, in 
even into the 1940s and 50s, the teams, the Celtics, the Boston Celtics and the Lakers, the Minneapolis Lakers were really small teams, you know, that the, the compared to those, you know, the barnstorming style like the, the Globetrotters. Um, and so when TV came along in the 1940s, um, most of the teams, you know, being located in these smaller cities for um, for the actual league, because you know the 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 big teams located in the big cities were just single team attractions. Um, they they had a like the this was before the NBA, but the the. Uh, the BAA um, and NBL at the time had a really hard time like getting any exposure because we're talking about like the Fort Wayne Pistons and the Rochester Royals and the Syracuse Nationals and these sorts of teams. And a franchise called the Tri-Cities. <laughs> in a nice. franchise called the Tri-Cities. Yeah, and there's a, there's a Cincinnati team, but you know, there weren't big market teams really. Um, well, this functioned as a different kind of entertainment, right? I mean, as one of the things I saw, you know, something like the L.A. sports arena where this game is played, the games were really scheduled for off days, so to speak. Like, they, they were just to fill up the schedule for these venues and make a little extra money. Or for television, it was relatively cheap broadcasting, as I understood it. And it's in the context of these smaller teams that we find the origins of the Lakers. Uh, the ba National Basketball League, um, the NBL, formed in 1937 out of a collection of teams in the Midwest in places Baltimore, like... No, Detroit Gems. Is that yeah, them? Exactly. Exactly. One in year? Places, yeah, Not it, even, right? <laughs> it, it starts in places like Akron and Oshkosh, and the league had a rough go of it during World War II and even contracted down to just four teams in two seasons. Um and in 1947, two businessmen from Minnesota bought the struggling, as you mentioned, New York Gems of the NBL, moved them to Minneapolis, and named them after the land of 10,000 lakes, and thus was born the Lakers franchise. <laughs> right. The next year, 1948, the team uh, transferred to the recently formed um, Basketball Association of America, the, well, which was the forerunner of the NBA, um, alongside of a, a handful of other teams, making the BAA rather than the NBL the dominant basketball league in the U.S., and kind of the rest is all history. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, so let's... Gameplay, you know, um, you know, Let's see. okay. Gameplay, dribbling and passing the dribbling and passing in this game are not the dribbling and passing we are used to today. And, you know, this sure this is over 50 years ago. Um, I was still struck by how uh, basic some of it was. And I think some of that was the ball, but I think uh, an even bigger part of that was just the conception of what dribbling and passing could be at that time yeah guys, so to talk about koozie for just one more second here because he was such an you know it wasn't just his last game but there's there's a moment in the fourth quarter where he goes down with with an ankle injury and he gets carried off the court and he while while he's out, the Lakers make um, you know they've been making a, a big run since the half. I mean, because they were down, down big going into the half, um, and they they've made this big run, and they're 
they're only down, the Lakers are only down by like two points, and then Kuzi returns. And there was like, of course, my mind immediately went to Paul Pierce, right? Like that this was like, it's like a Celtics, you know, thing, a Celtics image. And, it, it, you know, um, what, what did you think about that, about the, the sort of like history repeats itself? Well, this is uh, related to the Willis Reed incident, also, right? Not at, not in the Celtics history, but in just sort of the NBA yeah. history of players returning from the locker room to sort of carry their teams uh, to victory. Michael's sick game too. Yeah, Willis Reed was a Nick, right? Yeah, he was. Uh, which is interesting because Kuzi was uh, could have been a Nick. Um, he was actually drafted by the Tri-Cities, as we mentioned, um, and then before the season traded to the Chicago Stag. But the way they sort of broke up the teams with all these new teams entering the league, um, it says before the season began, he was traded to the Chicago Stags. And when the Stags folded, the players were divided up among the surviving teams. When there were just three players left, Kuzi included, the names were placed in a hat and the Knicks, Philadelphia Warriors, and the Celtics lined up to take their pick. The Knicks drew first and were overjoyed to pick all-star Mac Zaslowski. Next came the Warriors, and they drew the name of veteran guard Andy Phillip. No complaints in the Philly, but Boston wasn't happy. Red Auerbach Celtics were left with the rookie Kuzi. So, <laughs> Kuzi could have been a Nick. Uh, best best bad, uh, bad luck that Red Auerbach ever had, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, bad luck good luck right right yeah that that return of koozie though you know i just thought it played into our our discussion of the gameplay and the he when he so when he comes back you know we don't think of him as having a great handle by today's standards or anything like that but he did run the break so yeah. well and yeah. they, their team changed when he came on the court. And I remember there was one moment where he, he sends this outlet pass um, that becomes this, like, this, you know, this just marvelous touch pass. Um, I can't even remember who was involved in it. Um, that, but it's like right after he comes back and, um, you know, leads to a layup. And then he, he comes back down a couple possessions later. Um, and he has this other great sort of no look um, assist. And, um, you know, he, he just, he was, I didn't, I didn't expect him to be as transformative as he was when I, when I first watched him in the first quarter, um, right. just because of, you know, the, the, the style of play, uh, I mean, the style of dribbling in particular is just right. so different. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think you make a good point in that there's this like lineage of Celtics and Celtic style. Um, you mentioned the best of enemies documentary and there was definitely like a, I mean, there's a racial element to it also, but it, I think what I did notice is that the Celtics sort of playing in this sort of old style way, you know, this very James Naismithian way of not dribbling very much and sort of leaning on ball movement and passing to move the ball up the floor. There is that right. consistency across generations from like Kuzi 
to Bird um, and that, you know, that 86 Celtics team, especially, or the 87 team, I forget the year where they had Bill Walton, where he just added to their, like, you know, <laughs> right. it was like an exponential factor to their already amazing passing that they had. But that just that consistency with the way they played the game. And I think you can see the sort of the beginnings of it here. Um, and then obviously, you know, we have to mention that Russell is sort of like the key to that since he's, you know, he's not really like necessary. He's not asking for the ball, you know, in classic Dwight Howard fashion. He's not trying to post up and get his post touches. He's rebounding, you know, he's getting an assist. He's pushing the ball. He's kicking it out to Kuzi. Um, so, I mean, that, that was that was definitely something that I noticed. Yeah, the Celtics have always had those sorts of players, I think. Um uh, just the, the those team guys. I, I don't know which comes first, the team guys or the team winning. Uh, but that's always been a big part of their history. We see it with Kuzi. We see it with Russell. You know, we see it if you look at the box store, score of this game. The Celtics have one, two, three, four. They have six guys in double figures. Casey Jones with nine. Uh, um, they're only going eight deep, but all eight of those guys are Hall of Famers. All eight of those guys are contributing in different ways. Um, just a really great sort of team game. Um, let's go back to uh, Kuzi's uh, 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 dribbling. You know, one of the places he was uh, a version of the modern NBA was on the break like that, um, as, you, as you called out, Kyle. I think that was... Um, one of the places we truly saw it. It was odd, though, to see, you know, the dribbling on those breaks. They're really pushing the ball out in front of them, and that's when they look best and most like today's dribbling. Um, so it, it, I, I was trying to figure out how Kuzi could have the amazing reputation he does and how Wes does today. And I realized that, you know, the dribbling and passing we see there was pretty great for 1963 and also what the lack we saw there was partly conception but it was partly the ball itself um so i i did a little research i went back um the first few years the first ball was actually a soccer ball um there was very little dribbling it really dribbling hadn't quite been invented but 94 spalding um Naismith went to the Spalding Ball Factory and asked them to make a ball, gave them specifications, uh, and what they came up with was a lace-up ball that had four panels. They were sewn together, uh, and then it had a rubber bladder inside for the bounce. The problem was these early balls were really variable, different sizes, different bounce. They could be uneven, that sort of stuff. In 42, because of factory advancement, Spalding was able to create balls with a consistent size and shape. They were about 32 inches, and they weighed about um, 20 ounces in 48. Um, and, and, and if you can imagine, that 32-inch ball was a lot harder to shoot on that peach basket or rim uh, than the ball they're using today because the ball shrinks from 32 inches to 30 inches. It's 29 and a half today. But that 30-inch ball was in play for a while. The NBA used the four-panel basketball um, from 1970 on, so it was seven years after the game we're watching when that comes into play, and the balls do get a lot more consistent um, through that period. That ball is eventually adopted as the official ball in 1983, and that's the ball I grew up 
playing with um, when we were talking about it uh, last week. Um, I, I, this might have just been on our group thread. I can't remember now, but we had a good ball and it was that good NBA ball. We also had a bouncier ball for winter when it was cold and we couldn't play with the good ball. And we had a knobby one for rainy days so you can still play with it, but it tore up your hands. And so I'm just sort of fascinated by that history of the ball and what you can do with it. Today, the NBA official game ball is standardized in a really strict way. It has to be orange, 29 and a half inches around and weigh 22 ounces while being inflated from 7.5 to 8.5 ounces per square inch. So really different today. The ball's so standardized and the conception of what we can do with the ball, uh, which is furthered by the whole Harlem Globetrotters, by the way. Kyrie Irving would not have his handle today without the Harlem Globetrotters uh, back in the day. So just a little another bit of um, basketball history there that sort of fascinated me this game yeah i mean i think that's an interesting point and i mean there's a lot of sort of vines going in all different directions with this game but i, I couldn't help but think about Nay naismith and uh dave hickey's essay so i mean i think in yeah. that essay he lists uh one of the rules of basketball that naismith lays out and that the ball should be big um and right. in, in the essay hickey says he's uh naismith unknowingly is like uh, protecting against these large-handed individuals like Kawhi and Julius Irving in the future <laughs> have the ability to just palm the ball in this way and, you know, do these amazing things with it. And I think, as you're saying, like, the, the early ball was much slicker, which sort of made it yeah. more difficult to dunk. Um, and, you know, just, I mean, there's just well, so many even things. pass and catch. We see it in this game, right? Like, it almost bounces off their hands sometimes when they're trying to catch it even. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's so interesting because this game is in 63, and yet there were so many changes already to the game from its, like, original conception <laughs> by this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think those changes, as Hickey lays out in his essay, would be accepted because they were meant to sort of, well, some of them were meant to, like, increase freedom and play and exploration right. in the game, but a lot of them were not. A lot of them were in response to dominance by big men, and so yeah. this game is sort of smack dab in the middle of, like, the NBA's dominant big man era. So before um, Bill Russell, you have George Mikan. Um, then you have Bill Russell, uh, and then sort of in conjunction with Bill Russell, you have Wilt Chamberlain, and then after you have uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So it's like all these big men just sort of dominating the game, and there were like a ton of rules around this time to stop them. You know, as you said, Kyle, the shot clock was was about George Mikan, the Mikan rule, the widening of the lane from 12 to 16 feet, or I think, no, from 6 to 12 feet was the right. first Mikan rule. And then the Wilt Chamberlain rule from uh, 12 to 16 feet. They also widened the lane in college uh, when Wilt Chamberlain was in college's junior year to prevent him from being so dominant. They outlawed dunking for a year uh, <laughs> yeah. it, when Luol Cinder was in college. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. Um, so all these rules to sort of limit the impact of big men that like were obviously the dunking rule was rescinded. We kept the the wider lane, but it's just sort of interesting to see how we got to the game that we have now. Yeah, it's interesting that we had to go through those rule changes for big men to get back to the game we have today where big men are unleashed in nearly every way, inside, outside, dunks, anything. Um 
uh, so I'm glad that sort of corrected itself. And I love that you brought that back to the Hickey essay and the rules that govern and the rules that liberate all of that. It occurs to me, you know, there's a pretty obvious positive correlation here. Has basketball has improved as the basketball has improved basketball the game has improved so you know as the basketball improved the dribbling and passing improved and the game itself improved so there's really a sort of obvious um trajectory with that too um with the big yeah. man it had to it had to go through that historical glitch and the racism implied there and all of those other things um but it, it it eventually corrected uh in a way so yeah, and I think something else I noticed about the gameplay was that there were a number of offensive fouls called, and they were almost all called with players that were in the air, sort of like the offensive player, I guess, was being signaled for jumping into the uh, defensive player, which right. is a play that is almost like never called now. Like, it's rare for an offensive foul to call to be called or happen in the air. Like, you may get an off-arm call, you know, uh, right. but it's usually when people are on the ground that the offensive player gets called for the foul now. So that was something that was interesting to me. And the way yeah. it seems to be, like, almost less violent in some ways, uh, you know, now we have the charge rule, which is leads to injuries to some sense. We have guys like... You know, basically any undersized player, any player really who is going up against a Rudy Gobert type player has to put their shoulder into them, has right. to jump into them to get them off balance to score. And yet there is like a sort of not a fear, but like a hyper awareness of that, it seemed like yeah. in this game. Um, and there... it, it again, it just reminded me of like the essay of like the the desire to adjudicate like brutality out of the game. <laughs> yeah. Exception. Yeah. Um, so it was it's... interesting. No, that was that was, and it actually, it, um, I, I like that you brought that up. It took me a while to figure out what that call was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, they were calling, they were calling the offensive foul. I'm like, what? Where? What happened? Yeah, what's happening? And I was backing it up, rewatching it, trying to figure out what they were talking about. Yeah, because you just see the player jump, and you're like, this is completely normal. Like, what? <laughs> yep. Well, another thing that caught me in the broadcast, um, Pivot Man. They kept referring yep. to Pivot Man. Anyone want to take that one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I noticed that as well. I was like, wow, what, why do they keep saying this? I mean, obviously, I assume it's the post player is using pivot moves and a pivot to score in the post, but yeah. it was interesting. It was that, and another thing I noticed was uh, the announcer at one point says, the Lakers break fast. And I was like, huh, I wonder if he meant to, to, to do that or if that just happened. Right. Well, did right. Break fast. Did that eventually become fast break or was fast break in use then? I didn't pick that up. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think fast break was in use. I was just okay. Okay. like, yeah. Uh, and Pivot Man was strictly the low post, correct? Because yeah. they did call out the high post at times. Be because I think what I think when they were using the Pivot Man label the most it was when uh the lakers downsized and they went small for a bit i think it was okay. maybe in like the third or fourth quarter um and oh, they Baylor eventually went on there, they, right? they went on a run um uh and they sort of got the themselves at that point like, i think he was the four or the five yeah he was definitely the four at least the power forward and they yeah. sort of downsized. well it's interesting be it's interesting because he he was playing a guard position in the fourth yeah. quarter right yeah, he 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 played definitely. Well, he played guard, and but there was at a point in the game where they downsized, and he was basically the four man. Yeah, yeah. Well, when Selvi was in, he moved up to the three or the four. Um, but Selvi was having a terrible game, so he ended up playing up 
a fair amount in this game. And you can um, even see after the game when they're doing the interview, the interviewer asked Red Auerbach about that, about them like going small and them having to adjust or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of funny. Like the adjustments that happen in a game like this were so blunt compared to the adjustments that would happen in a game today. It was like, oh, they went big or, oh, they went small. <laughs> Those were the adjustments. Um, they're, yeah. They're, <laughs> it wasn't sort of like, this is what we're going to do to their pick and roll or, you know, anything like that. It was it was sort of big, small. That Those were the adjustments you could make. Yeah. It, it was interesting the first quarter was a game of runs. Uh, as I mentioned before, and you know the Celtics um, go down early, nine to five, and have to call a timeout only like one or two minutes into the game. Um, and Kuzi uh, comes back after that timeout and takes over. Um, you know, Russell makes a putback. Kuzi hits two free throws. Uh, comes Kuzi comes back down and hits a layup on a give and go. Um, he s- assists on a back at the Heinsohn, and then he sets up a play for Russell that turns into another basket for Heinsohn. And all of a sudden, the Celtics are up fifteen to nine. Um, and then the Lakers go on a run and they take the lead. The Celtics go on a run and they take a lead. And then you know, and then the game completely changes in the second quarter where the Celtics go on this huge run and it's really the Lakers trying to play catch up for the rest of the game, which they never do. You know, they, they get really close. They get within one in the fourth quarter. In fact, they get within one with under a minute to play when um, Barnett makes a bucket and, and, and gets fouled and hits the end one. And they, they get it within, I think it's one Oh seven to one Oh eight. Um, but I just found the, the like the overall gameplay there really interesting, right? Because there, they there there's this um, really kind of chaotic almost first quarter of of runs, and then it takes a very um, sort of recognizable um, like uh, dominant team with the underdog comeback for like the next three quarters. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think what what other notes did I have? Um, let's see. Oh, well, I, Casey Jones was uh, in this game. So yeah, first Jerry West. Uh, I looked this up uh, to remind myself. It was one and eight in the finals, and this wasn't one of the, this wasn't the one. Um, and <laughs> Casey Jones uh, is on this this Celtics thing, Celtics team. I think this is pretty early in his career, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he, he won eight championships as a player. Uh, he also played with Bill Russell at, uh, San Francisco, University of San Francisco in college. Um, he was, he had an eight, no record in the finals. Uh, obviously it helps if you play with, um, Bill Russell, and he's also the only African-American non-player head coach to win multiple NBA championships. Um, he won those in 84 and 86 coaching the new Celtics with Bird and McHale. Nice. Yeah, he only played nine seasons, it looks like, in the NBA. Um, <laughs> but he was 26 when he came in in 58-59. So he must have been playing uh, in Four another years week. in college? Or, yeah, it's possible. Or, yeah, I'm not sure. Huh, interesting. Oh, there, and then we didn't mention there was a tip-off to start every quarter, which is different. 
Right. A lot of tip-offs, a lot of jump balls. Um, there were some other oddities I, I, I noticed. One, one you called out already, Jalen, a lot of the jump shots were one-handed. Um, it struck me that the free throw line, how casual some of the free throws were. And there were a lot of one-handed free throws, no guiding, you know, second hand, any of that sort of stuff. And one of the announcers called the free throw a penalty shot at one point. <laughs> which I thought was a nice little throwback uh, to have in there. But um, And something yeah. to think about, uh, blocks as an official statistic weren't recorded until the 73-74 season. So if you go on uh, Bill Russell's basketball reference page, it doesn't have any block numbers listed. Did the, There were quite a few in this game, though. Did either <laughs> of you try to count them? I started in one of my watches just sort of counting his steals and blocks, and then... It, 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 there's so many possible, <laughs> you know, plays where you could call out something like that. It's kind of incredible how much an effect he had on defense, not just the actual blocks and steals, but just the fact of him being there in the middle. Um, you know, it created this space around the basket that many of the Lakers did not approach. So back in 1963, basketball on television wasn't so easy to watch. And it wasn't because of the graininess or the sound. It's not because it's black and white. But the camera work is really hard to follow, given how we're trained to follow NBA basketball by with today's camera work. So that camera work, any thoughts on that, Kyle? It's it's different, different <laughs> look to what we see today. You know... If you'll permit me, I think I, w I have some thoughts about the relationship between the NBA and TV, but they run back a little bit deeper than just the aesthetic of it because the basketball and TV arose really at the same time. The, the, the NBA is formed in the, you know, in 1948. Um, the first like full lineup of commercial television is 1947. And I think they the two had very big impacts on one another. And we can think a lot about how NBA became the game that it is because of its relationship with television. But to get to that, it takes a little bit of of you know sort of backtracking here um you know because the the uh in general the business logic of basketball at this time is is really interesting um in in retrospect uh most teams were run by the owners of significant sports venues and the basketball teams were meant to be controllable crowd attractions that the operators could use when they weren't booking hockey games and boxing matches which were like the big draws of the time and so basketball wasn't at the forefront of their attention of these owners attention. They basically like, they're like, we're going to own these basketball teams so that when our arena isn't doing these things that really bring in our money, we can like make a little bit of extra money. Um, early television stations realized the same thing. Um, actually in the first year of full schedule television, 1948 basketball was a prime time offering, if not attraction, um, and helped to fill time slots in, in a time with limited programming, but the game was so slow at this time. Um, this was before the introduction of the shot clock and the stations ended up having to pull, um, their basketball programming out. Um, and they just never went back to it. Um, and to give you a sense of how slow the game would get before the 24 second clock the Fort Wayne Pistons 
would take stall tactics to an absolute extreme to beat the defending champion Minneapolis Lakers in 1950 in a game that ended 19 to 18. With George Mikan scoring 15 of the Lakers' 18 points. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And uh, so this what was, was his usage rate. Oh, geez. I mean, it would have to be so high, wouldn't it? <laughs> and so, like, clearly this was not the stuff of primetime television. And, um, and for the time being, it was the college game, and particularly the Holy Cross Crusaders, that would draw TV audiences. Um, and Ho- Holy Cross basketball is interesting to us today because their star player um, was Bob Cousy, and that's where he would make his television debut. Um, it would also be where Celtics power forward um, during the championship run and current color commentator Tommy Heinsohn, um, who is also in this game that we watch, would play college ball. Um, so we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about like ancient history here. I mean, this is still like interestingly lived history. I mean, Tommy Heinsohn is still the broadcaster for the Celtics. Um, and so. One other thing that I wanted to mention here, you know, regarding the shot clock is where it comes from and when it happens and how it changes basketball. So um, Danny Biazzoni um, was the owner of the Syracuse Nationals at this time, which is now the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, he's generally credited with inventing the 24-second shot clock and lobbying the NBA to implement it in 1954. Uh, it changed the NBA. I mean, it paved the way for the league becoming a television spectacle, almost to the date. Um, because 1954 is when you start to have the first television contracts first with the Dumont network and then moving over to NBC in 1955. But what's interesting here, these contracts that, you know, we think of like a television contract, like covering all of the games, but the television contract in this case really covered them like broadcasting like four or five games a year. And that was considered like a big deal television contract. Um, and I was also interested to find out that the, the NBC comes in in 1955 and then drops their contract in 1962, one year before the game we're watching today, and wouldn't come back to it until 1990, you know, at the beginning of that, uh, of the iconic John Tesh NBA on NBC. Um, the one that we all grew up watching with uh, with Mike, well, at least Michael and I grew up watching um, with, you know, Michael Jordan. Um, and so this is all to sort of take us back to discussing this game's broadcast. Um, so the game, yeah. the game we're watching is part of two games, only two games that SNI, the Sports Network Incorporated broadcast during the 1962-1963 NBA season. Um, they broadcast the All-Star game, and then they broadcast this sixth and deciding game of the NBA Finals. Bob Wolf is on the call. Um, Wolf would be inducted into the baseball, basketball, and sportscasters halls of fame. Um, and in particular, um, he's known today as being um, the, the longtime announcer for the Knicks um, on the Madison, Madison Square Garden network in the 1970s. And for Fist, Pistons fans like me and Michael, um, he's significant as the predecessor to the 
legendary George Blaha. Yeah. Um, he was the last broadcaster um, for the Pistons before Blaha took over. Um, the look of the broadcast is super odd um, from today's standards. <laughs> yeah. At times, it's like really disorienting. Most of the time, um, we follow a single camera from midcourt that at times has its zoom lens go out of focus, it looks like. And so you yeah. get this like double, like blurred image. Um, but when it's working well, it tracks up and down the floor. Um, and and they, they do like weird uh, things that we aren't used to now where like they'll zoom in on the tip and then quick tilt up and down and follow the ball. Um, They do the same thing with these sort of like whip pans on passes and shots. Um, I also noted, just as like talking about tech at the time, the arena horn sounds like it's just like a, an automobile horn that they like repurposed for the arena. It <laughs> probably <laughs> was right. It really it sounds <laughs> just like a car horn. It's really funny stuff. Um, and uh, so showing the game, the score on the game is limited. And when they do it, they have to like, uh, you know, move the camera and point it up at the scoreboard. And actually at the end of the first half, Kuzi stays at half court so that he can look up at the scoreboard to see when the, the clock is going to tick down because that's the only time clock in the arena. Um, and uh, sort of the last thing that I wanted to mention here is that um, at the very end of the game, they get a little bit more... Um, it, it, creative with their their shots and like you can tell that they're trying to like like uh really hit home for dramatic effect so like when koozie comes down in a two-point game and takes a jumper um and you know this is like with less than a minute left to go they cut to the basket they take the the free throw image of the basket and like wait for the ball to come into it um it's like just really kind of interesting and like slightly disorienting you know by today's sort of television nba rhetoric um, standards and then um later uh they do the exact same thing for jerry west's final shot of the game um and uh yeah that's it i mean you're right like lots of really interesting um you know television connections with the nba and it's definitely not the experience that we have with the you know the 80s and 90s games that we've been watching yeah i i I love um that you know we have tv in 47 and um the, the connection to the league in 48 that you made. Uh, one of the other connections here is the, the ball itself was updated in 42, making all of this possible too. So it's sort of fascinating the way it all came together. But I, I love the stuff you did on camera work because that was the really odd disorienting part for me on those last shots you described where, yeah, it just cuts to the backboard and you're like, wait, what's happening? Or those whip shots, which we just aren't used to today. um, They're moving so fast. It's so disorienting. You're not sure what you're looking at when they make those quick uh, pans, turns, whatever they are. Um, It took a a little while to get used to all that stuff. Um, all right. Do you guys have anything else? I think I'm about through my notes here. I mean, the only thing that I'd say is that, you know, there's the moment when Heinsohn steals a slow lob pass from West and puts the Celtics up 106 to 102 on that breakaway layup. And I thought that that was like that was the moment that sealed it. I mean, 
the it was a killer. Lakers, the Lakers do get back within 108 to 107, but that was really that that play stood out in my mind as like the the moment the game was lost. The, the air sort of went out of the ball for the Lakers right there. I felt like, and you could sort of, and, and I was watching that play and thinking back to West's play earlier in the game. He had so many slow passes you could not get away with today. Just it would not be possible. His game started. The game started one that was Selvi in the corner, and then this one that Heinzen picked off. It was a problem in his game. Yeah. So in that documentary, the Best of Enemies documentary, um, West, I think it's after like the 1969 um, finals when they had lost however many times to the Celtics. Um, and um, and then they get back to the finals in 70 and they beat the Knicks and they get, yeah. finally get finally get their championship. And West is is. He's basically like, I, I never recovered from that, that I didn't right. get to beat the Celtics. Right. Um, he got the championship, but not against the Celtics, and it's haunted him forever. And, uh, yeah, and that came to my mind because I was like, he must have fixed the lob pass at some point because they won a championship, but it, but it, <laughs> did, but it didn't come against the Celtics. <laughs> yeah, yeah you cool. mentioned the Best of Enemies documentary and the, the, we're talking about a, a lob being stolen, which you know makes me think of Havlicek stole the ball. Um, oh, yeah, and then in the documentary, horrible. there's also sort of a mini one from Gerald Henderson making a steal late in the yeah. game, I think, against... Either Lakers? the Pistons or the Lakers. I, can't I think it was remember. the Lakers. Yeah, that was a heartbreaker. Um, I think that was Magic's fault. Even I can't yeah. remember now. But um, but yeah, as uh, basketball historians know, the Celtics did win this game, uh, and the, uh, they won the game one twelve one oh nine. The series four two. It was the fifth the fifth of eight straight NBA championships for the Celtics. And it was the beginning or near the beginning of a long history of the Lakers losing to the Celtics. That gets resolved uh, later on down the line, but uh, it takes a while. And I think that is it for this broadcast of the Shot Tower Pod. We are turning off the phantom power. Cheers. You know, the Globetrotters are probably one of the reasons I love basketball today. I, I, I don't know how much of an entry point they are for kids today, but when the Globetrotters came through town, we went and it was fun. And I still I still remember, you know, the bits, Metal Arc Lemon with the bucket and the confetti. Um uh, Curly, uh, you know, just the way he could dribble, all this stuff was just truly amazing. And there was a kind of joy around those basketball games that is that is different than the kind of joy you see with an NBA game today. Uh, just just a really, truly distinct experience.